Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Before we look at our text this morning, which picks up in verse 14, I just want to remind you of what we looked at last time. We're not going to cover the ground that we covered before, but I just want you to hear Paul's words because they lead to a question which he's going to address in the text we look at this morning. So if you remember last time we began in verse 6, and the question that that paragraph is all about is whether or not God's word has failed. God made a promise to Israel in the Old Testament, but now that the understanding of what God is doing has changed, did that mean that God's word had been uh, changed, altered, that his promises had failed? So here's what Paul wrote. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For for this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born. And had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. If you recall, those quotations within the text are Old Testament quotations, mostly from the book of Genesis. So Paul is demonstrating that that in the establishing of the covenant with Abraham, there was already an election taking place that didn't work the way people thought it did. And then finally, he quotes from the prophet Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And that's that line that you heard in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. As I said last time, as you hear that text and you think about what it says, there's a question that naturally tends to arise. When we talk about this, and and the question is, wait a second, that doesn't sound fair. Is God just? Is God revealing to us in this passage that he's actually unjust? Is that the lesson that we're meant to take away from this? That's the question that arises, and that's the question that Paul turns to immediately in our text. As he often does in the book of Romans, he is anticipating objections and answering them. So instead of just laying his argument out from beginning to end, he builds it up piece by piece, and then along the way, he anticipates the questions you're going to have, and he tries to answer those questions. So that's what he's doing here, picking up in verse 14. He says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, 
and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's the word of the Lord. As you hear that text, you'll notice some similarities between the two paragraphs, between the two passages. Paul's doing something very similar. He raises a question, and then he answers it, but he answers it by quoting Scripture. So he's taking us back to the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's drawing conclusions from those quotations. There are some interesting differences, though. What you heard in the first passage that we looked at last week, those are largely quotations taken from the book of Genesis. So he's going back to the era of the patriarchs, to the days of Abraham, when God's promise is first established, that that covenant of grace is first established, and he's demonstrating that uh, things worked even back then the way he's describing now. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, he's also quoting from the Old Testament, but not from the book of Genesis. He's quoting here from the book of Exodus, which to us sounds like he's just advanced a little bit. He just went from the first book of the Bible to the second book of the Bible. But, But actually he's jumped over a huge epoch in time. Because he's gone from the age of Abraham now to the age of Moses. And just a little spoiler, as he continues the chapter, he's going to turn next to the age of the prophets. So he's giving us almost an Old Testament survey as we work our way through. Now, he's been giving us contrasts, a study in contrast in the way that God chooses. And so... In the first passage that we looked at last week, we saw the the contrast between Ishmael and Isaac and also between Esau and Jacob. And here he gives us another one, but this is really interesting, between Moses and Pharaoh. He quotes two passages where God speaks. First, he speaks to Moses, and then he speaks to Pharaoh, which is a little bit different than speaking to two brothers. Right now, he's speaking to Moses, who's the mediator of that old covenant, and to Pharaoh, who is like the Adolf Hitler of the Old Testament. A little bit different in uh, quality here, but we'll get that, that, that one versus the other dynamic. In the quotations that we see from Exodus, in the words he speaks to Moses, in the words he speaks to Pharaoh, you'll see that he's drawing certain lessons from each of those statements. The first has to do with God's right in election, that God has a right to choose as he's choosing. And the second has to do with God's freedom in election. God is free to do this. He's not bound or obligated. He's acting freely in this choosing. So we'll see those things right on the surface. But there's something else that's more of an undercurrent, and I would argue is just as important for us to recognize, maybe even more important. There's an undercurrent that we shouldn't miss. It's kind of a shift in thinking that Paul is encouraging without stating. And it's a question, basically he frames the question one way, but he answers it another. You might think of it that way, right? Because the question he asks is a question of justice, Is this a just way for God to behave? Is God revealing his injustice? But when you look at the way he answers the question, he doesn't answer it the way we would typically answer a question like that. He answers it differently. He shifts 
the argument. He frames things not in terms of justice, but in terms of mercy. Not in terms of justice, but in terms of mercy, as we'll see. But first, let's think about justice and injustice a little bit. And Paul insists there's no injustice in election. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. As he's done before, he asks the question, but then he immediately undermines it, repudiates it. If this is the conclusion you draw, then you're not understanding what it is that I'm saying to you. No, of course there's no injustice on God's part. He repudiates this possibility in language that suggests just the opposite. Not only is God not unjust, but no one is more just than God is. But you can understand the accusation. right? You can understand why the question comes up. And the accusation of injustice arises out of that previous paragraph, especially the way it ends with that Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We went back and looked in Malachi for the context there. But that's one of those passages I would argue people think sometimes that that looking at the context blunts the impact of the words. I don't think it does. Like, I don't think going back and saying in Malachi that when, when God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, he's also saying, Israel I loved and Edom I hated. I don't think that makes you think, oh, well, that's fine. Never mind then. It's not just Esau. It's, it's the whole nation of Edom that, that makes it fine. No, that's not the way you react to that. You start thinking to yourself, wait a second. Is that just? Is that right? Is that the way that God should be? That's the question. I think... Whenever we talk about election, whenever you talk about the idea of God choosing, that having anything to do with human salvation, inevitably you have to talk about this question of justice. If you remember when we started chapter 9, we saw Paul saying something about uh, the Jews who don't believe Christ, about the Jews who reject Christ. He actually says he wishes that he could essentially sacrifice his salvation on their behalf, that he could be estranged from God so that they might be reconciled with God. And that's the context that all of these questions come up in, like that idea of Paul pleading for Israel in the same way that Abraham pleaded for Sodom. When God had decided he was going to destroy the city of Sodom, Abraham doesn't sit back on the sidelines and say, well, it is about time. Those people are wicked, and I would love nothing more than to see God plaster that city. That's not how Abraham reacts. Abraham goes to bat for them. Abraham negotiates with God on their behalf, if you recall. In a similar vein, Paul, as he's writing this chapter, he's thinking along those lines. Like He's he's wanting to intercede on behalf of those who are enemies with God, who refuse to be reconciled. With God, that's the spirit of what he's saying. And if you remember the passage in Genesis where Abraham is interceding on behalf of Sodom, Abraham frames the question the same way. He frames it in terms of justice. When he argues with God, the the way he argues with God is he raises this question of justice. You find this in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Uh, Abraham, contemplating God's plan to destroy Sodom, says this, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, 
so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So when Abraham contemplates what God is going to do, he makes a moral argument against the plan. He says to God, don't do this, because if you do this, it will be unjust. It wouldn't be right. The God of the universe ought to be just. The judge of all the earth should act rightly. That's Abraham's assumption, and that's the argument that he makes against God. Now, it's interesting the way that God responds to this. Abraham is saying it would be unjust to punish the righteous along with the wicked, basically. Like you're going to destroy Sodom, but if you do that, you're going to destroy some of the guilty, but also some of the righteous. But it's like bombing the city because some of the people in the city are bad. Like, God, that's not a just way to behave. That's the argument. And God doesn't respond by saying, Abraham, look, you haven't known me long, but if there's one thing you need to know about me, it's that I'm not just. I do what I want. I'm God. Whatever I do by definition is right. So if I destroy the righteous and the wicked, it's fine and you just need to live with it. That's not what God says. But God actually goes back and forth with Abraham accepting Abraham's assumption that it would be unjust to punish the righteous and the wicked. God agrees with the premise, agrees that the judge of all the earth should do what is just. And yet Sodom is still destroyed. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? If God agrees that you can't punish the righteous along with the unrighteous, then then why does he still pour out that judgment? The answer is one that Paul's already given us. It's an answer that comes from Psalm 14, which he quotes in Romans 3.10, none are righteous, no, not one. None are righteous, no, not one. Abraham intercedes for Sodom. He argues that the righteous shouldn't be punished along with the unrighteous. God agrees. God agrees. The problem is not that that the righteous and the unrighteous are living side by side in Sodom. The problem is there are no righteous, no, not one. That all of the inhabitants of the city in their own particular ways, are unrighteous, are deserving of the punishment that they receive. Paul repudiates the possibility that God might be unjust, but he does it because he's learned a lesson, so to speak, from the example of Abraham. Paul rejects the thought that God might be unjust, and so must we. But we also have to recognize that our conceptions of righteous and unrighteous differ from God's. That what seems righteous to us in the eyes of God is not. So, right from the start, I want to emphasize one thing. And I think this is important because a lot of people, when they start thinking about this idea of of election, of choosing, of God having chosen a people for himself, you might say to yourself, well, that seems unjust. 
that seems not right, but, but he is God, so I guess he can just do things that ordinarily would be unjust. And he can get away with it because he's God. He makes the rules, something like that. In other words, you might say to yourself, you're being pious by accepting, okay, God is unjust, but he is also God, therefore deal with it. And I think there are people who, who come to this and, and, and end up in that place. They think that what we're saying is, yeah, God's unjust, but he has a right to be unjust, and what you have to do as a human being is just deal with it, just accept it. Sure, God is sometimes cruel and harsh and that sort of thing, but his ways are so much higher than our ways, and you just have to deal with it, right? Maybe you've heard people talk that way about God. Maybe you've been one of those people. I just want you to recognize Paul is not like that. Paul does not say, is there injustice on God's part? Sure, fine, whatever, but deal with it because he's sovereign. That's not what Paul says. For Paul, it's unthinkable, just as it was for Abraham, that the judge of all things would not do right, that God of all people would not do justice. And he insists that God does justice here. The problem is that when we come to this question, we don't recognize that it's not a question of justice so much as it is a question of mercy. Paul insists that God not only has the right to choose as he does, but also the freedom to choose. Let's look at the right first. This is where he quotes the words spoken to Moses. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see how he does that? It's like a one-two punch. He gives you the quotes, And then he draws the conclusion, the so then. He's going to do that twice. He'll do it again in just a moment. So he quotes the words that God speaks to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul draws the conclusion, so then, it, this choosing, this election, this salvation, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's a point he's made already. It's a point that John makes in his prologue. It depends on the will of God, not on the will of man. But you really do need to appreciate the context of those words to Moses to understand in fullness the point that Paul is making. Paul's assuming a knowledge of the Old Testament here that we may or may not have. So here's what you need to to know. This is a quote from Exodus 33. To understand it, we really have to think about what's happening in Exodus 33, but also in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, Moses is with God up on Mount Sinai. He's receiving this revelation of the law from God. It's going to be written on tablets, the the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. But while that's happening, something else is happening at the foot of the mountain in Israel. The children of Israel have been waiting for Moses, but it's taking a long time. Because God is giving him all of this instruction, all of this law. And as the people are waiting, they come up with this great idea that they should make an idol for themselves to get worship going. And what they're doing here is not what you might think of when we think of the golden calf that they make. A lot of people think they're making a golden calf and they're worshiping this golden calf instead of God. That's not exactly what's happening. They're worshiping this golden calf as God. 
Like they know they've been delivered by God, this God who came to Moses, who, who brought them out of Egypt. They just don't have a, like a representation of him. And the way that people worship, as they already know from their experience in Egypt, is you make little idols that represent the gods and you pay homage to them, you worship them, that sort of thing. So for whatever reason, and we don't fully understand why, when they think about what's the right way to represent the God who has delivered us, they come up with a golden calf. And they make this idol, and they set up a way of worshiping him. So that's what they're doing on their own, without any input from God. They've not only made themselves an image of God, but they've also instituted a way of worshiping him that in their eyes seems right. It seems like the right way to pay homage to him. But what they're doing is syncretism. It's, it's idolatry. It's wrong. And Moses finds out about it when God tells him what's going on. It's just awkward, as you can imagine. While Moses is receiving this revelation from God, God's like, hey, guess what's happening down there? But he does more than that. He doesn't just tell him what's happening down there. He also tells him his plan for how to deal with it. And God's plan in Exodus 32 for how to deal with it is to kill them all and start over with just Moses. And he says this to Moses, I'll wipe them out and I'll start over with you. That, that's the plan. And then Moses does what Abraham did for Sodom. Moses does what Paul did for his brothers and sisters in the flesh. Moses intercedes for those people. And he says to God, no, 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 you shouldn't do this. He, he, he essentially uh, begs that God will not do this, that he will spare them that he will show mercy. He understands they're guilty. It's not one of those situations where Moses can say, wait a second, God, you shouldn't destroy them all. You should just destroy the ringleaders. You should just destroy the ones who are guilty because they're all guilty. That's not an option. So he has to intercede on their behalf knowing that they are guilty. And God relents. Moses is successful. God does as Moses asks him to do. In Exodus 33, that's what's going on. And as part of that um, exercise of mercy, Moses asks a request of God. That you're going to do this. You're going to show mercy. Uh, Now I'm going to ask that you would reveal yourself to me that I might know you. Now I'm going to ask, and these are the words that Moses uses in, in Exodus 33:18. He says, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And if you're familiar with this story, you know what happens. God says, okay, fine, but you can't look directly at me. I'm going to hide you in this cleft of rock, and you're going to see sort of the, as it were, like the hind parts of my glory. You're going to get a little taste of it, And even that is going to be so extreme that Moses is going to glow as a result so that people are afraid to be in his presence because of the way he reflects that glory of God that he's beheld. That's what happens later. But before that happens, when Moses asks, please show me your glory, God's response to him is what Paul quotes in Romans 9. God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, his covenant name, Yahweh. 
and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So just like the people of Sodom, the people at the foot of that mountain are guilty. But God has chosen not to give them justice, but to show mercy to them. And in that context, Moses asks, show me your glory. And in showing his glory, revealing his glory, what God says to Moses is, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That showing of mercy is a revelation of God's glory. If the salvation of Israel had depended on human will or exertion, to use Paul's words, that will, that exertion would have resulted in their condemnation, their just condemnation. Because what their will led them to do and what their efforts resulted in was false worship, idolatry. They were guilty. But they didn't receive the justice that they might have justly received. Instead, they received mercy and it was a way of God revealing His glory. God was gracious to them. He had the right to be gracious. That idea of rightness is what Paul is emphasizing here. God has a right to do justice, but he has a right as well to show mercy. It's within his power to do both. Moses desires to know him and to witness his glory, the aspect of himself that God insists on as part of his glory is the showing of mercy. It's the showing of mercy. That demonstrates how important that is to God's sense of himself. When God, we talk about his desire to glorify himself in all things, the showing of mercy demonstrates the glory, the goodness of God. That's the right that he has to show mercy, but Paul also addresses his, we, we could say his freedom to show it as well. He gives us the contrast. Right? There's Moses who intercedes on behalf of his people and they're shown mercy. There's another leader of men that Paul refers to here. It's Pharaoh. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's from Exodus nine, sixteen. And Paul concludes, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's the conclusion he draws from this. He has mercy on whomever he wills. For example, Israel, Moses, and he hardens whomever he wills. For example, Pharaoh. So you ask yourself, was Pharaoh an enemy of God or was he an instrument of God? Was Pharaoh... God's opponent fighting against him? Or was he actually an instrument of God who was being used to work out God's plan? And the answer seems to be both. He was both of those things. Just as God showed mercy to Israel in Exodus 33 to demonstrate his glory, he also says he raised up Pharaoh for the same reason, to demonstrate 
his glory. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, God didn't make Pharaoh his enemy. He was already unrighteous, like the rest of us. Like the rest of us. But God says he hardened him. He confirmed him in that unrighteousness. In a sense, he gave him what he wanted. He didn't change his sinful desire. He didn't end his enmity with the God who had made him. He let it be. We talked about this in Sunday school. C.S. Lewis has this quote, which I think is pretty good in trying to describe this, this difference between the showing of mercy and the doing of justice. So when God shows mercy to us, we respond and say, Thy will be done. And to those who reject Him utterly, who refuse to be at peace with Him, God answers, Thy will be done. We aren't condemned unwillingly, in other words. We get what we want. We get what we desire. And what we desire is condemnation. What we desire is enmity. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God is free to act in this way. Just as he's free to show mercy to Israel, Paul says, despite their unrighteousness, He's also free to harden Pharaoh because of his unrighteousness. And you might think to yourself, okay, fine, Pharaoh, I get. As I said earlier, Pharaoh, he's like Hitler. He's really bad, right? But, but Jacob and Esau, was Esau like Hitler too? I mean, Paul made a point of saying that it was in the womb before they'd done anything, either good or evil. So how do you account for that? How can we say that that Esau was unrighteous? Esau was just neutral. If you think that, you're forgetting Romans 5 and the imputation of Adam's sin. Paul would say to you, no, no, no. No one in the womb is innocent. No one in the womb is righteous. All of us are corrupted. If you're born human, you're born in sin. You are, by definition, unrighteous. You get the idea. Condemnation, in other words, isn't a mystery. It's not a mystery that that there's justice, that, that unrighteousness is punished. The real mystery is election to life. The real mystery is, is that, that sometimes God shows mercy when he could justly execute judgment because none of us deserve it. None of us deserve it. And that's how Paul shifts the ground here in in the the passages that he refers to. Because election to life in Christ is not a question of God executing justice. Rather, it's a question of God showing mercy. There's a shift in thinking that's necessary. You ask, is God unjust? And Paul answers, he's merciful. He doesn't offer evidence that God is not a tyrant. Instead, he says justice is the wrong paradigm when it comes to evaluating this election. You should be thinking in terms of mercy. 
And we say to ourselves, shouldn't God distribute grace fairly to everyone, each according to his deserts? Well, no. According to Paul, if everyone got what they deserved, there would be no mercy. Only judgment. Paul's reminding us that that's not what grace is. That's not how grace works. Grace is not a right. It's a gift. In saying that, all Paul is doing is echoing the words of Jesus. If you look in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus gives a parable, the parable of the workers, that illustrates exactly what Paul is speaking of here. The point of the story is to say, essentially, your instincts tell you one thing, but your instincts are wrong because you're judging the situation according to the wrong criteria. So it may seem like there's an injustice, but it seems that way only because you don't perceive the kind of situation this truly is. If you remember the parable of the workers, Jesus tells this story of a a boss who's hiring men to work in his field, and throughout the course of the day, he hires more and more people to get the work done. The beginning of the day, he hires some guys. He says, if you'll do this work for me, I'll pay you a denarius. And then throughout the day, he keeps doing the same thing. So that the guy he hires, like half an hour before the work is done, gets a denarius at the end of the day. And so does the guy who's been working all day long. When it comes time to give out the money, everybody gets the same. And that may seem equitable until you remember, wait a second, some people have been working all day and some people just showed up. And everybody's getting the same. That's not just. That's not fair. People should be compensated according to how much effort they've put in. That, that's the way things work. Right? That's the objection against the ruler, the master, the boss. And you would expect Jesus to see it that way. Jesus, as a champion of the poor, as a champion of the working man, you would expect Jesus to side against the boss here and say, no, you've got to pay people fairly. But that's not what Jesus says. The conclusion of the parable is what you have in your order of worship, Matthew 20, verses 13 through 16. Uh, And here's Jesus finishing the story and then drawing the conclusion. But he, this is the boss, replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. I think the parable catches us off guard, as Jesus' parables sometimes do, because the way Jesus rules on this is not the way we would rule on it. Like If you had the scenario, but you didn't get the conclusion from Jesus, you would expect the lesson drawn to be a very different lesson. But the principle that Jesus asserts to him seems self-evident. The master has the right to do what he wants with what belongs to him. It's the same principle that Paul is teaching in Romans 9. And I think Jesus goes farther, of course, because Jesus also puts his finger on the problem, like the reason why we have these objections, the reason why we're not content to accept God's salvation on God's terms. Jesus says, you begrudge my generosity. 
you're judging this as, as a question of equity, but this is actually a case of generosity. You begrudge my generosity, and it leads you to criticize me. In Jesus, God has given us a generous, merciful gift. Jesus is the highest possible expression of the generous mercy of God. He's given us precisely what Moses asked for in Exodus. Forgiveness for our unrighteousness, but more than that, also a way of knowing Him. Moses says, please let me behold your glory. Jesus reveals the glory of God. But Jesus is the answer to that request. And yet, when that reality is revealed in all of its generosity, we naturally object. As Paul points out, we see the flaws in the arguments, the difficulties in the doctrine. We react with hardness. Objecting, what about my rights? What about my freedom? This reveals not only our hardness, but also a fundamental failure to appreciate the kind of situation that we find ourselves in, our true situation, where the rights that matter and the freedom that matters, as Paul points out, is God's and not ours. When it comes to salvation, it's God's right, God's power to do as He desires. God's freedom to show not only justice, but also mercy. That's what matters, and that's what invites our gratitude. It is our unrighteousness which has condemned us, so we have no right to mercy. It's our sin that has enslaved us, so we have no freedom to defend. And if... In spite of this unrighteousness, God sends His Son to redeem us. If He calls us to repent of our sin and believe in Christ, He gives us life in Christ despite what we've done and who we are. Then we shouldn't begrudge Him His generosity. Instead, we should cling to it. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.